This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. This is episode four with Tim Lawrence. Grief on purpose. This is On Purpose with Justin Barclay. Extraordinary stories of ordinary heroes on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to On Purpose. My name's Justin Barclay, reformed radio shock jock turned inspiration junkie. Each week we bring you extraordinary stories of ordinary heroes living their daily lives, turning pain into purpose, finding opportunity in the obstacles, and transforming tragedy into triumph. What separates them from the others? How do they stand out above the crowd? We dissect their process and uncover their powerful secrets, the keys to living life on purpose. This is a really special episode for you today. I want to warn you ahead of time. We are talking to a man who is tucked away, hidden in a little tiny closet of a monastery. And he's not been talking a lot lately, so I don't know if you're going to hear the floodgates break open as Tim kind of starts to kind of just share with you his journey. Um but I will warn you, we had some audio issues with our connection because of where he is. But even though I kind of thought maybe I shouldn't share this, it's just too good. The message, even though the audio may not be, the message is just absolutely too clear and too good not to share. That being said, Tim's story is very interesting. We'll get into it, but... He's a man living with disabilities, and through the pain, the struggle, the tragedy that he's endured in his life, he's found a way to triumph. He's the definition of turning pain into purpose, and he's living on purpose. He's a blogger, a grief counselor, he's spoken on stages across the world, and he's a really good guy with a great message. So let's say hello to Tim Lawrence. Welcome to the show, Tim. How you doing, Justin? Thanks for having me. You know, I first um, I first found out about you, Tim. A friend had shared um, a piece you wrote in your blog on Facebook, and I was scrolling through, and one of the things that caught my eye was the title was Everything Doesn't Happen for a Reason. Mm-hmm. Which was, I thought, really interesting because uh, one of the, <laughs> one of the mantras, one of the things that I have kind of uh, uh, adopted was, you know, everything happens for a reason. And mm-hmm. I, I think what's interesting is the more I read into your blog piece and the more I kind of let it settle in, I thought, man, this guy would be a really interesting person to talk to, um, you know, partially because I think you have quite an interesting story. But I think this is a really I think. Anything that you adopt or any any sort of philosophy that you subscribe to, I mean, you really should be able to examine it a little further mm-hmm. to think and to pick it apart and think about it and, and really decide, like, do you really feel that way or is it possible that you heard some sort of catchy slogan somewhere on on TV, you know, or or these days read it online and, and said, OK, that's yeah, that sounds that's good. That's my my feeling du jour, but you know, let's kind of talk a little bit about this and, Mm -hmm. and you know, what led you to to write this blog piece and and what it actually means. That's a great question. So I, I wrote this blog piece largely in response to the plethora of platitudes that I have found both recently and over the years that have been espoused um, towards other people, uh, particularly when they are grieving. Um, I 
worked with people in pain in some capacity, whether through my writing or through consulting or just as part of my life story. Um, it's something that I've done ever since I was a child. I've just had a, a particular resonance with people who are in pain, given the, a lot of the traumas that I've gone through and a lot of the traumas that my friends have gone through. And I have found that there is just a magnificent dearth of real, appropriate, powerful grief support uh, in this culture and in our country. Um, we tend to avoid grief. We tend to shame grief. We tend to sweep it under the rug. And one of the primary ways we do that is through the offering of platitudes, um, through the offering of often well-meaning and often well-intentioned sayings that really don't serve any purpose and they don't serve the people who are grieving. And give me an example wrote, of one of those. So one of those platitudes. Yeah. So, um, so obviously everything happens for a reason is one of them. Uh, something like that is often offered to somebody who's let's say lost a child or has suffered a devastating injury, or perhaps someone might say something like, um, this will make you stronger. Um, that there's this, this, built an assumption that, that adversity and difficulty will make you, it's, it's happening, you know, because it'll make you stronger or it's happening because um, God ordained it or God didn't ordain it, or it's happening <clears throat> because uh, this is a chance to rise above. Um, so there's, there's various platitudes that are offered. And my, my primary issue with them is that they actually in my view, they really preclude people from what I believe is most important to those who are grieving, which is acknowledgement and connection and presence. Um, because the thing is, is when you go through a tragedy, so if you, if you suffer a death or you go through a debilitating illness or you go through bankruptcy, people say things to you. And when they say, when they say things like, um, it'll all work out, or this happened for a reason, or <clears throat> God ordained this, or whatever it is. What they're really saying, what, you know, what they're really saying a lot of the time anyway, is some version of get better. And that doesn't necessarily mean get over it tomorrow. It doesn't necessarily come from a place of cruelty, of course. But there is this intrinsic sort of motivation in our culture for everything to get better, for everything to have a happy ending, for everything to work out. And the problem is, is that when those kinds of platitudes, when those kinds of sayings are offered, um, what often happens, and I've seen this over and over and over again, is someone will be going through a devastation of some kind and, and friends, acquaintances, loved ones will offer the platitudes and then they'll often go away. They'll often disappear. And when the, the person who's grieving does not, quote unquote, get better in an appropriate amount of time or in a way that others feel that they should, um, they often become increasingly isolated. And then the people who are in their lives just offer platitude upon platitude upon platitude. And before you know it, the grieving person doesn't actually have people, as I think I mentioned in the blog, they're not surrounded by people, they're surrounded by trite, cliches, truisms, platitudes. And that... <clears throat> That really, really irks me. And I just wanted to, I really wanted to shine a light on that, not as a means to say that if you say something stupid or you say something trite, you're a horrible person. I just, I wrote this piece because I wanted to point out that these platitudes are so endemic in our society. They are so pervasive. We're all guilty of them. I'm guilty of, of bestowing them. But they're so pervasive that they've become dangerous and they've become an instrument of not connection, but of disconnection. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, and and I know, like you said, we, we all have, I have, you know, I think we, you come from a good place of meaning, you know, well-meaning when you say those things. But I, I have um, often, especially recently, tried to decide, okay, what is a better way? So give me... Um, Give me a better way, because what I really want to do, my goal when I talk to people that are going through something mm -hmm. is my goal is to let them know that they're acknowledged, their pain is acknowledged, that what they're going through is real 
and um you know and let them know that 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 I'm there for them but at the same mm-hmm. time that this is not this is not the end right so so right. what what can I say or what can someone say who you know who wants to say the right thing and and be and 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 I, and I, I we're also living in this world where we're all kind of walking on eggshells anyway because of you know uh our language we're watching because of politically correctness and things like that but what can I right. if I want to do the right thing cuz I think most of us do Mhm and I agree I do think that most people want to and you know, when I when I answer this, I'm I'm speaking specifically about what happens in the immediate wake of devastation, and often in those immediate days and weeks after something really tragic happens, when someone is at their most fragile, most vulnerable. Um, the ironic thing is that that is the time that platitudes and often emptiness is offered the most, whereas presence is offered the least. So what I, what I would offer is what I would suggest is that first of all. I would, I would say to people, be willing to not say much of anything. Be willing to simply be with the person, especially in those first hours, those first days, whatever the loss is, whatever the tragedy is, to simply be with them. And if they don't want you to be with them, they can, they can you know, they have their agency, they can tell you not to. But, but people who have faced devastation are often in just, the, the pain is so overwhelming, they literally feel as if they are not existent in the world anymore. Their world has been shattered. And so to know that another person is literally willing to be uncomfortable with them, right? So to suffer with them, right? That's the root of the word compassion, right? Is to suffer with. So to suffer alongside instead of trying to fix it, right? Because this is something else I spoke about in the argument, in the, in the, in the, in the blog post, um, is that we have this inherent desire to want to try and fix everything. Um, and, you can't fix devastation. You can't fix the loss of a child. And so I, I totally hear you when you say you want to offer hope. You want to say to someone, it's not over, don't give up. But I don't think that those are, the, those are not really the appropriate words to offer at the beginning. At the beginning, what I would say is more than anything, be willing to say almost nothing. Be willing to be, more than anything, just be willing to be uncomfortable. Be willing to acknowledge, to bear witness to the person that you're with, to say, I'm here with you. I'm just here. And yes, I'm sorry. I'm so terribly sorry. I am so sorry for what happened. I understand that in, that just innate desire, which is very well-meaning, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. But, but once you cross that chasm into, into well, this something good will come out of this or there is an inherent reason behind this or this was meant to be or this had to happen as soon as you cross that chasm things often get spiral out of control and it and it often just further alienates the person in their despair not always but very often and that was one of the central things that i was really trying to address in this piece so i i just you know i just i really want people to know that you know because the thing is is you know, again, in, in our culture, and this is this is often human nature. I'm guilty of this myself, but we don't want we don't ever want to be uncomfortable, right? We don't want yeah. we don't want to deal with other people's pain, even when we want to be empathetic. We don't want we often don't want to to deal with stuff that sucks. And when when someone you love or someone you know goes through something that sucks, there's there's often a part of you that just doesn't want to deal with it as well, even if you even if you really want to do the right thing, yeah. there's something about our, our nature that makes us not want to be uncomfortable. And I, I would just entreat people to, to say, look, when, when a loved one is facing devastation, this is a time to be uncomfortable. It's, it's a time to be profoundly uncomfortable. It's a time to allow yourself to suffer alongside that other person for a time, especially in the wake of tragedy. Talking with Tim Lawrence, his blog, by the way, the adversity within can be found at timjlawrence.com slash blog. And he is uh, he's sharing with us, I think, a great example of how he, as we get further into this, uh, has been able to turn his adversity into advantage, right? His trial into triumph and really his pain into purpose. It's what he lives for today. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that struggle, that pain, because it is something that we all... I think in society, Americans specifically, right? We really want to, and because of the modern age, want to avoid that pain, that struggle, if at all possible. 
And is there really some good that can come of that? We'll tackle that question next. This is On Purpose. I'm Justin Barclay. This is On Purpose. On Purpose. On the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website, powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-215-0465. That's 800-215-0465. This is On Purpose on the Blaze Radio Network. Want to get all the full show notes in one place? You can grab them at justinbarclay.com slash purpose 004. And if you want to jump on the all-access newsletter, tips, tricks, and inspiration to help you build your business and live your life on purpose, go ahead and send us a text message right now. Grab your phone and text the word Justin, my name, to 44222. That's Justin to 44222. And uh, it'll just ask you for your email. Text that back and you're in. We're talking right now with Timothy J. Lawrence dot com. That's his blog. Tim Lawrence is a grief counselor, and he's someone who's gone through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering in his life. Um, yet he's been able to transform that tragedy into triumph. He's taken that adversity and turned it into advantage. We're talking about how he's done that and specifically talking about pain right now and struggle. Well, it's interesting, Tim, that you, t- you talk about that we don't necessarily want to suffer with other people. We don't really want to suffer ourselves. I mean, we don't want to go through it. Like right. our entire lives right now are designed, mm-hmm. especially with convenience and modern technology and things that are available to us to, to not have to mm-hmm. deal with many inconveniences or suffering or pain or any sort of struggle. And, and I think it's fascinating because um, I think that part of life is really struggling. I can't get rid of all of the suffering or all of the pain in my life. And if I could, mm-hmm. does that make me human anymore? Mm-hmm. Right. I agree. Absolutely. I mean, and I would, I would argue that, that, uh, to not suffer is, is to not be human. I mean, I, I, one of the things I say, uh, on my website is that adversity flows through the essence of the human experience. It is part of who we are. Suffering is part of what we are. It is what it is. We can never fully excoriate it from our beings. Um, so it's something that we're going to come in contact with just like, at some, you know, and, and I think this is really pertinent, and I think perhaps one of the reasons why this piece has resonated so much is because this is something that affects every single one of us at some point. I mean, not only are we all going to die, but we will all lose loved ones. We will all suffer some sort of health problem at some point or know someone who will. I mean, 50% of us will get cancer at some point in our lives. I mean, yeah. like, tragedies will happen, and so it's it's really, really important to understand that suffering, yeah, it, it's, it's extremely unpleasant. It's often a really, really horrible thing. So instead of saying, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it, which often just exacerbates it, instead perhaps say, you know, when a loved one is going through something that is causing tremendous suffering, to be willing to stand with them and suffer alongside them and to help them in ways that, that they may not – the thing is, is <clears> – <throat> The thing is, is you often don't feel like you're helping when you're with someone and you're not quote unquote doing something. Right. And I think that, I think that in, especially in tragedy, I do think it is incredibly important to remind ourselves that we are at the end of the day, we are not human doings. We are human beings. And when you are beset by tragedy and loss, you are be a being who is just overwhelmed with suffering. And so to have other people in your life who love you, who care for you, 
participate in that beingness alongside you through acknowledgement, through the offering just of themselves, however that takes form, is just it, it's an act of magnificent love. It's so, so powerful. And I can just I can just say, I can testify to the fact that when I have lost friends to suicide or accidents, when I have gone through health crises, when I have gone through real hell, the people that I remember the most were the people who didn't really seem to do anything, the people that didn't think that they did anything. I have had friends tell me I, I didn't do anything, and I, and I really honestly believe that in some ways they saved my life because they were just there, and they didn't leave my side, and they loved me through their actions, and they didn't try to fix me. They were just there, and they, and they participated mm. in that. They bore witness to me. A lot of this is fixing. Like, we want to fix it. We feel like we want right. to. I, I have a neighbor. Um, the neighbors live right across the street from us. He was sick, and uh, I knew he had cancer, but I could tell in the last several weeks that that he was either close or was having lived with. You know, my grandmother, while, while I was younger, came to live with us, and I'd seen that process up close and personal several times, and... Mm-hmm. I just knew that it was close and um, I was going to my mailbox to get mail out one day and and his wife had come out and was grabbing the mail in in her mailbox and we were able to have a brief conversation and she said, I I don't know if you knew, but I just wanted to let you know that he's very close and, you know, um, we're near the end and if you see a bunch of cars here that kind of thing that you know that it's that you'll know what happened and it really was um you know it was uh it was the next day that i think that he he actually did end up passing but Mm -hmm. at the time you know you want to do something or you i think you do want to say something to help take that pain away if you can, but you know that, you know that you can. I mean, I was thinking like, what can we do to, to help? And so I said, all I said to her really was, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, I can't even imagine that. I just said, you know, um, let us know if you need anything We're we're, you know, we're here for you. And, mm-hmm. you know, that I just didn't even know, like, what can you do? I mean, do you, you, you like, because a lot of times when you have deaths, you know, families and things like that, there will be a lot of cooking. People will bake things and mm-hmm. they will bring things to you mm-hmm. because they want to help. And somehow all of this food is supposed to, you know, take this pain away or do something. And a lot of times you're not even like you can't even eat, you know, you're, because right. of what you just went through. But so I was thinking like, gosh, we got to do something like that. But, you know, it's funny just because I left it open. She did come over the next day or two and. Um, knocked on my door and we had a quick conversation and she just said, Hey, um, uh, our visitation is tomorrow and the funeral is the next day. And I was just wondering if you could help keep an eye on the house and just, if there, if you see anything unusual, um, you know, would you just, you know, let us know and, and, and that kind of thing because of, you know, sometimes people will go. Uh, look in the paper and see who's, you know, who's had a, uh, you know, an obituary and see who's had a death and they'll, they'll target those homes, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. she did come over and she said that. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And it felt good to be able to at least do, do something you said, we're not human mm-hmm. doings, but you know, it's so true. We want to, to do something, but, um, it, it's it's all a part, and I'm fascinated, Tim. Can you tell us a little bit about because it comes from a very personal um, place with with you? Can you tell us a little bit about like your work and you know and and these times that you've heard these things and and what you're what you're doing personally, what it came from in your life? Absolutely. Um, so I think to best answer that question, I would have to go back to the very beginning of my life. I. I lived with a form of cerebral palsy. When I was born, I almost died. I wasn't breathing. Um, I had a very small chance of living at all. Um, it was it was quite astounding that I did survive. And not only that I survived, I made a almost a miraculous recovery and and um, was able to do what I do now, live an independent life. Um, and so I've I've lived with 
uh, cerebral palsy, and I also live with epilepsy, um, uh, which both affect me on a day-to-day -day basis. I have daily physical, neurological challenges. I look, uh, quote-unquote, normal in a lot of ways. I get around fine, but, but I do live with these conditions, which affect me very much on a daily basis. Um, and I also experienced a lot of tragedy at a young age. Um, my father, or my, my brother passed away when I was when I was young, and so I witnessed what that did to my family, to my parents. Um, and when I was in high school, I went through a very serious depression that was brought about because of several factors, but among those was the fact that I, I lost several friends of mine uh, in quick succession to various actions and tragedies. Um, and I had, n I had really not had any previous experience with those who are close to me dying, and that really sent me into a, a downward spiral. And my, unfortunately, my experience with death has continued throughout my 20s. I, I did lose several more, more friends all at a young age for various reasons. And so you kind of combine all those factors together and I've, I've simply experienced a lot of death and a lot of loss and a lot of tragedy. And I also live with a couple of chronic conditions. Um, and I would just say that I noticed that at a young age, from the time that I would say in high school, um, people often came to me for help when they were in very adverse circumstances of themselves. Um, and I didn't understand it at the time because to be honest with you, I was pretty messed up myself, but people started coming to me for help for, for whatever reason, people seemed drawn to me when they were in pain, when their lives were falling apart in whatever way that looked. And so I found over time that I seemed to be helping in some way and I didn't get it when I was young. It didn't really, I didn't really understand it until I was older, but I think that if I was helping at all, what I was really doing more than anything was acknowledging. I was listening to people. I was simply being with them. I was offering as much time as, would, was, as was needed to friends of mine. And this just kind of continued into my adulthood. Um, and you know, I, I ended up going to New York. I actually originally trained as a professional actor and singer. I worked in show business for a while with, with some success, and then I ended up burned out by that and ended up in corporate America and ended up in corporate America for far longer than I would have liked. And I think that what ended up happening was about four or five years ago, um, my epilepsy, which had been dormant for some time, came back, and it came back with a vengeance. And I became extremely ill, very sick. We didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, I was seeing lots of different doctors uh, because I was having a different form of seizures to the kind of seizures that I'd had when I was younger. And um, my life just kind of went to hell. I, my longtime girlfriend and I broke up. A couple more friends died. I gained 50 pounds. I was buried in debt. Things were not looking very promising. And I resolved um, to pull myself out of that. But I, it was in the midst of all of that pain and suffering and grieving that I really began to, um, to, first of all, interestingly, I began to offer myself to other people, even amidst this chaos, because people started coming to me again. It was, it was very interesting. I was, again, I was in a broken state, but I found that more people than normal were coming to me for help. And I wasn't, I was, and I was just talking to them. I was just listening. I was just being with them as I could. And in time, I began to sort of research um, adversity on my own, just as a, as a, as a layman. And, and um, I started to connect with psychologists and therapists, um, started doing some research into the field of post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I left corporate America um, to pursue my dreams and travel the world and um, train at a world famous gym and, and, uh, and, uh, and work as an editor and do the work that I'm, that I'm doing now, which is, you know, in, in the end, it led me to this, to this monastery where I'm at. So um, I, I do the work that I do uh, because for whatever reason, I simply have this innate gift of some kind to 
speak to others who are in pain, who are going through adversity. It's just a, it's a topic that's very passionate to me. Um, and I do have a lot of experience with it in my own life. Um, and so if I can be of service to other people, um, if I can offer myself through my writing and through consulting, through speaking, and just most importantly, simply through being there, through acknowledging the people that I know who are in great pain, um, then I will feel that I've, that I've really honored what it is that I'm, that I should be doing. You know, it's so funny because when I hear you describe it that way, I think about how this whole show, the theme of, of what, not just today, but in general, what we talk about when we talk about living on purpose, you know, you, you just described that you've like nailed it to a T taking those things in life that seemed like obstacles and turning them into opportunities. We'll talk about that process, how that works and maybe how you can help people shift and see things differently. How would you advise them? Tim Lawrence, our guest, when we continue, I'm Justin Barclay. This is On Purpose with Justin Barclay on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. It could equally, and frankly, more likely, more likely means that these people like Donald Trump and that these Democrats are crossing over so they can vote for Donald Trump. Those are the three things that can mean in Ohio. We'll know in a few hours. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is On Purpose with Justin Barclay. On the Blaze Radio Network. We're back with Tim Lawrence. TimothyJLawrence.com is the blog. And he's been through a lot in his life. His purpose now is helping other people who have gone through the same or even worse. You know, Tim, we were just talking about this, actually. The, the name of the show, what we talk about is life on purpose. It's, we talk about turning pain into purpose and, and obstacles uh, into opportunities. And it sounds like you're living that. You're doing just that. So, you know, to me, my question for you really is about, Tim, how, how do you... You know, how do you advise other people that are going through something? Because I mean, we're all going through something at some time. You know, how do you advise somebody while you can't say, because, you know, you make this point very clear in, in your blog, you can't say everything happens for a reason. Um, you can't necessarily say that. What do you say? How can you advise them to take a look and mm -hmm. maybe shift the perspective well, that's a, that's a great question. And I would say, well, first of all, um, you know, I would only ever do any advising. And when I do do advising, I don't do it in the immediate wake of a devastation. So in the immediate days and weeks afterwards, I am simply there. I am simply acknowledging. But once a person is, once a person has begun to wrap their brain around what happened, and I'm just saying, I mean, just in, in an infinitesimal way. Um, I would say a few things. First of all, um, I think it's really, really important to understand that when you are in the midst of a loss or you're just trying to make a shift in your life, maybe you're not facing a, a great devastation, but maybe you're in a job that you hate, or maybe you're in a relationship that's toxic, or, or maybe you're simply not doing at all what you feel like you should be doing with your life and you feel like your life is wasting away. Um, I think it's very, very important first to take stock of what it is that you have and assess what it is that you don't actually need. In other words, I think it's very, very important for people to ask themselves the question, am I, am I happy with what I have and can I actually be happy with what I have? Um, and I'm, I'm addressing this particularly to people who want to make a shift because there's a, you know, I work with different kinds of people and there are those who are in extraordinary grief 
and they need, I think, one set of resources. And then there are those others who are simply often beset by their own self-sabotage or their own isolation. Maybe they have gone through a, a period of, of significant suffering or grief, and they want to make changes, but they don't know how. And I find that often people are ingratiated with a sense of feeling like they always have to have more. And that itself is a cause of almost unimaginable suffering. And I bring that up uh, primarily because, first of all, I mean, I, when I left corporate America, I, by any standard definition, I've never been rich, but I was doing just fine. And I was living a very, very standard American consumerist lifestyle. Uh, and I was immensely unhappy with what I was doing. And I now certainly make less money. Um, I certainly don't have any sort of corporate prestige behind my back, yet I'm a thousand times more fulfilled. I feel like I have a thousand times more purpose and a thousand times more meaning. And that's one of the reasons for that was be is that I was able to, over a long process, this did not happen overnight, but over a long process, I was able to learn to actually value what I already had, what I already owned, and what was already in my life. And... I mean, I, I actually am I'm very heavily influenced by Stoic philosophy, which uh, I think is a, a brilliant philosophy, uh, a, a brilliant philosophy of life. Um, I highly recommend it to people. I, because the Stoics, they very much valued the prudence of overcoming your own insati insatiability, because we are intrinsically very insatiable. We always want more. And I think that wanting more, wanting things to be different, wanting the next thing, whatever that is, is one of the greatest precluders of us actually making a shift of our life. Now, that's a little bit different than if you are in a really hellish place. If your life is really, really dark, you can focus on simply doing one thing. As in, if you're in bed all day, you can literally focus on starting with getting out of bed and going outside for one hour. Or you can say, if you're, if you're sitting in your room and you are isolated, which, which is, by the way, extremely common, and I think that this is one of the things I was trying to address in my blog post, is that platitudes and so forth are often extremely isolating. And people in grief are often completely alone. Millions of people at this very moment feel, not only are they grieving, they feel completely alone. And so I would encourage someone who is in grief to if they're, if they're feeling incredibly isolated, just make a connection with one person. That's it. Or, or exercise for five minutes. Or talk to somebody that you haven't spoken to in three years for five minutes. Um, these, these are just, they seem like nothing. They seem like absolute nothing. But I can tell you that when I literally thought that I might have like some sort of genetic disorder four or five years ago or cancer or, you know, the doctor said I might be having strokes before we realized that it was epilepsy again, I was literally home most of the time. I took a leave of absence from work. I was alone almost all the time. I completely shut out most of the world. I was angry. I was bitter. I was upset. And, I, and it was in time that I realized that I was a slave to my own insatiability. And I think just as importantly... I was, <clears throat> I was devastated by the, isolation, by the isolation that I had kind of brought on myself. Um, some friends did sort of disappear from my life. Some people who I needed disappeared. But the thing is, is, the thing about loneliness, the thing about isolation is that it compounds, it feeds on itself. And so over time, I wasn't even consciously thinking of this at the time, but over time, I started to do small things like... I would go outside for an hour or I might exercise for a few minutes or I would call someone or I would read a book or I would, <clears throat> or I would not buy something that I thought that I needed. And that, that had an extraordinary compounding effect. Um, you know, Darren Hardy's book is, is a pretty brilliant overview of how, of how the tiniest changes in one's life can really compound. Um, when I was, just completely beset by, uh, by seizures and allergic reactions to drugs and so forth, I would say, okay, what is it that I can actually control in this situation? And that's, that's something that I really bestow to people. 
If you're in a really adverse circumstance, focus on what it is that you can actually control. And this is also largely another stoic principle because we tend to spend the vast majority of our time thinking on and trying to action things that we either have no control over or only little control over. And, and I think that that's partly because of how we've just sort of evolved, sort of our, our nervous systems tend to desire instant gratification. We often want to plan for things. We want to complain about things more than we want to do things. We're all guilty of this. I am definitely guilty of this. But I think that if you actually pull yourself in and if you're facing a hell of a situation, you actually ask yourself, okay, what is it in this situation that I can actually control? And then take initiative towards doing that, whatever that is. Not only is yeah. that extraordinarily liberating, it brings about a, an increased sense of confidence. It brings about an increased sense of well-being. It brings about an increased sense of what we like to call happiness and obsess over, you know, the happiness question. And it also brings an increased sense, ironically, of control. Have and you, I, Tim, Tim, have you read Viktor Frankl's book? A Man's Search for Meaning? Yes. Yes. Because mm -hmm. what you're saying, I mean, to me, in in uh, in a nutshell, is that, that whole idea of what you can find the mm -hmm. the the next step or whatever that is the next action and that you always have control over something you right. know that there's a there it may seem like many things are out of your control but yet you always do have there is something that that you can control and then a lot of what you've you've just kind of uh, talked about too has been i'm hearing gratitude you know just the idea mm -hmm. of being grateful for what you do have the things that you do have and, and shifting that focus from all the things that are bad which i mean if you if you think about when we do focus the things that we focus on become bigger you know we look at how right. traffic sucks or our job sucks or whatever it is right and then you you focus on those things and they they can overwhelm and overtake you eventually yet if you can focus on hey i'm breathing today <laughs> You know, just something so simple, um, you know, it, it 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 can make a big difference. But let me ask you about gratitude, because this is where gratitude mm -hmm. kind of gets a little funky. And this right. is this is going to this is going to be something that I think, um, you know, kind of rubs up against your piece a little bit, too. So how big of a role does gratitude play in this whole process of transforming a trial into a triumph, pain into purpose? Et cetera. We'll ask that question and Tim answers next. Tim Lawrence, TimothyJLawrence.com, the blog, and you can get more info, by the way, full show notes at JustinBarclay.com slash purpose zero zero four. If you'd love to grab the newsletter, find out how you can get tips, tricks, inspiration on a daily basis to turn your pain into purpose, right? Your... Um, obstacle into opportunity the adversity into advantage well of course we'll give them to you at justinbarkley.com but you can text in right now on your phone just text the number 44222 and my name justin just my name justin the 44222 you get an email um or a little text message back that asks for your email send that back and you're in more with tim lawrence next I'm Justin Barkley. Extraordinary stories of ordinary heroes. This is On Purpose with Justin Barkley on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. Is there an uh, anti-socialism Bernie Sanders meme going around? What? Yeah, that's wrong. Against I, socialism? Against People socializing Socialism. with each other? Is right. there a problem with that? I guess so, Stu. I guess uh, America has gotten to be such a bad place, you can't even socialize anymore. Mm -hmm. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Ordinary heroes walk among us every day. These are their stories. On Purpose with Justin Barclay on the Blaze Radio Network. 
it's like one of the pillars of my success, right? And I start every day and end every day with gratitude, practicing gratitude. I, you know, just write down the three things that I'm most grateful for. And it really does, I think, help a lot with shifting my focus. And I wonder, Tim, how much does it play a, a role in the process with you anyway and, and helping other people as a grief counselor, et cetera, to see that they can change their obstacle into an opportunity? What kind of role does gratitude play? I would say this. I, I think that, well, first of all, I would preface it by saying that gratitude itself is a practice more than just a platitude, right? So it's often spoken about in the sort of trite, cliche way, just feel grateful, just count your blessings, yada, 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 right? We hear that all the time. Gratitude is itself a practice. It's much more powerful when it's practiced. It's like an exercise, like you have to go to the gym. It'd be like saying, hey, hey, Tim, why don't you just go lift a thousand pounds over there? (laughs) You know, it's something that you have to work up to, right? It's the exercise. Absolutely. It's, it's a practice. It's like a muscle, it's like a muscle that will atrophy if it is not exercised. And so I think that's a very, very important point to to make because a lot of people, when they hear gratitude talk, they do shut off because they think, Oh God, somebody's just handing me another trite cliche. When the reality is gratitude is itself very powerful if it's practiced. And so, yeah, she, and, and it also does tie into the theme of what you can control because I can choose. I mean, to this day, I have days where uh, I have extraordinarily debilitating symptoms from my epilepsy where I feel like, I'm going to die. I mean, and that's only a slight exaggeration. Now, I don't sit around on those days and say, I am so grateful I feel this way right now. But, but what I can do is say, all right, um, I'm not going to be able to do everything that I wanted to do today, and I feel really awful. But I can still write for 10 minutes. I can still call that friend, and, he, and maybe I won't be able to speak to him as long as I wanted to, but I can still offer that. I can still give my friend Sarah a hug, um, and I am still alive, right? So those little practices, those are just a few examples, um, are incredibly powerful. And so that's the first part of what I would say, which leads to the second part, which is that I think it's also important to bear in mind that gratitude can and does coexist with pain. I don't think one cancels the other out. There's often this false dichotomy that's offered that you're either you're either grateful or you're self-pitying. You're either um, contented or you're a victim, that kind of thing. And that's just ridiculous. So I, when I think right now, I am in this moment thinking about some of my friends who have died, I am profoundly grateful to have had them in my life. Yet at the same time, I also, in this very moment, feel immense pain at their not being here anymore. And so I think that that's a really, really important thing to point out because they do coexist and it's okay that they coexist. And, and, and ironically, I find that over time when I allow them to coexist, I actually become more grateful. Um, because yes, I celebrate their lives Uh, I celebrate the fact that they were in my life, that they were a part of my legacy, a part of my imprint, a part of what the brilliant author Sarah Manguso calls ongoingness, right? Like we just, our lives are like a series of movements that we can't take back. And time is just ongoing. It's like ongoingness. And, and I can, I can be, and am so thankful. I feel so grateful for the people who have been in my life who are no longer with me. And I feel tremendously blessed and happy to have had that. Yet at the same time, I still miss them dearly. I still sometimes feel tremendous anger. I still sometimes feel a a very real sense of survivor's guilt at times. So it's not one or the other. And I think that, you know, this, this kind of comes back to my piece. I just, I really wanted people to understand that you can actually be angry 
you can actually feel immense pain. There's nothing wrong with it. And I, and, and this, this, I think I wrote about this on Facebook or something today. There's this idea that, that, that grief is shameful, which is just ridiculous. Um, people feel tremendous shame about grief. I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of people assume that uh, many people who are in some form of pain are just, are just, you know, they're just victiming themselves and they're just throwing a pity party, et cetera, et cetera. And sure, some people do that. But I think a lot of people, a lot of people, do not actually even permit themselves to grieve because they feel such humiliation at the thought that they would allow themselves to suffer, that they would allow themselves to be angry, that they would allow themselves to be full of rage, even for a little while, that they would allow themselves to be full of pain over something that warrants that reaction for a time. And, and so I just, I really, I really hope that people do take away that it's part of the process to feel all those things. And the gratitude and the love and the thankfulness, those can come. They do come, but they exist alongside each other. Does it does it actually hurt somebody to not allow themselves to grieve? I mean, how how does that make it doesn't make it worse? You mean when somebody does not allow themselves to grieve? Yeah, if if you don't mm-hmm. allow yourself because there's the, there's there's uh there's the reality of like feeling the pain acknowledging it and and then working mm-hmm. through it right but then there's also like the denial of let me just go ahead and sweep this under the rug how does that right. exacerbate it I think it exacerbates it because it hides a fundamental part of who we are it's kind of like it's kind of like pr- procrastination or um avoiding the fact that you have uh a problem with I don't know, smoking or eating too much or whatever. It, the thing about that kind of tremendous pain is that for the, at least for the vast majority of people, I can't speak for everyone, but I've seen this over and over again. For the vast majority of people, it does compound internally. If it is not acknowledged, if it is not given voice, I can't say that there are no people on this earth that that doesn't affect, but I've seen that time and time again. Hiding in general is a corrupting of who we are. We are, I think, biologically hardwired for connection anyway, because it denies your own humanity, it denies your own suffering, and it furthers your isolation, which disconnects you further from other people, which just, for most people, is going to lead down a very, very hellish road. Does it help, Tim, as you have gotten you on your journey, at least mm-hmm. to a point where you have used the things that caused you pain and the things that caused you suffering, you've used those to help other people. I mean, to find some purpose, does that, does that help in that process? And, and do you recommend that to people? Well, I would say this. I do think that in addition to being hardwired for connection, I do believe we have an inherent ability for altruism and service. We also clearly have an inherent ability for selfishness and and hatred and so forth. But I think that service in general is a part of who we are, at least a part of who most people are. And, you know, I... I, I totally understand the question. I do hesitate a little because I, you know, this this gets this comes back to whether things happen for a reason or not, and which, of course, you know, wasn't you know, I I think you picked up on this. I mean, I I, I certainly wasn't making an intellectual argument. I mean, you could argue about that until you died about whether things happen for a reason or not. Um, that wasn't my purpose in writing the piece, but I think I think that I think that it's it is imp- it is important to use, quote unquote, whatever life has given you in a way that's congruent with who you want to be. And so I will say that, yes, there's no doubt that having undergone the losses that I have undergone and the pains that I've had to carry, um, there's no doubt that I have a much higher level of empathy and compassion, hopefully of understanding of others who 
are going through similar circumstances. But I, you know, and I and I do find a purpose in that. But I don't. I would I would never say that. Um, you know, um, I wanted to have uh, live with a disability so that I could help other people with disability. Sure. Or that I, I, you know, so. But yes, I, I mean, getting to the essence of your question, of course. I, I mean, I think it's very important. Um, one of my mentors, uh, Julian Smith, is the CEO of Breather. I mean, he he um, he often he has told me, and he has he has told other people. You know, one really great question to ask yourself is, who is it that you're trying to become? Not necessarily even what do you want to do or be, but who is it that you are trying to become in the world? What is it? What is your philosophy of life? Who who are you? what is most congruent with who you are and who you want to be. And I think that we do and can use everything that we've been given, everything that has been dealt to us, everything that we have endured, we can use it uh, in a way that provides service. So I, I guess my question for you, when I talk about life on purpose and living life on purpose, and we, we have these conversations for you, you know, what you, you kind of just touched on this, but what is, you know, what does that mean to you living life on purpose? That's a fantastic question. Um, I think, first of all, I, I will go back very briefly to what I just said in the sense that I do believe that living life on purpose is living a life congruent with who you want to be and become over time. And so when I'm talking about, when I, when I say that, talking about the values that are most important to you. So it's not, I want to achieve X or Y, and it's not even necessarily that I want to feel a certain way either, because I think that is endemic in our society. We're totally obsessed with feeling certain ways. Right? We want to be happy. We want to be joyful all the time. And that makes perfect sense. But the reality is things aren't always like that. What I'm talking about are the deeper virtues. So for me, it's things like discipline, fortitude, temperance, right? prudence, compassion. Um, those are very actionable. And they're incredibly powerful and they're liberating because they don't require you to make a lot of money. They don't require prestige. They don't require much of anything except a willingness to be extremely intentional about how you live your life. And I can tell you, I mean, living, living with uh, chronic illnesses, which, which literally forced me to construct my life a certain way. I, I, I have to do certain things um, that many people don't. I, I have to sleep an X amount of hours or I will be in a lot of trouble. I literally need to exercise. There, there are a lot of things that I need to do. Um, and the more that I infuse my life with, say, discipline, fortitude, um, compassion, the more that I feel I'm actually living on purpose. And I can tell you that being in a monastery, I am very challenged to do that because we are in silence a lot of the time. We are living a very deliberate rhythm of life. Everything is intentioned. Everything has a purpose. We obviously don't always live up to it. But if you want to live your life on purpose, then you have to start doing things on purpose. And that sounds easy, and it, so it might sound obvious, but it's so easy not to do that. It is amazingly easy to live your life simply going through motions, simply following prescribed paths. Via different mediums, which are also free and anybody can do them, meditation, writing, exercise, um, having people that you can go to in your life that hold you accountable, having, having those sort of outlets to not only process your, what you're actually doing, but to reflect upon what you've done and to do that every day. Uh, one great concept um, comes from my friend Chris Gillibo. Um, he, you know, he encourages people to do an annual review of themselves, and you can break an annual review down into a monthly review and a weekly review. You know, certain goals can be part of it, but much more, much more than that, it's about trying to assess who it is that you're actually trying to be and then doing things, doing activities, interacting with people based upon what those virtues are, what those values are. To me, that's living life on purpose. And, and, and 
I can say that my life not only is a million times happier, and not only do I feel far more contented, I do feel a tremendous sense of meaning and peace and confidence and trust in what I am doing because every day I try to do as much as I can on purpose. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's powerful. Um, so I want to give people a chance. First of all, thank you to, uh, you know, thank you to, to you, Tim, for, for joining us and, and, uh, and really just opening yourself up for, for all of this. And, and hopefully somebody listening will, will hear this. This will make a difference. And, uh, and I, I'm sure it will. How can people read more, uh, about you, find out about what you're up to, um, and, uh, and get to know you a little bit better. Um, well, first of all, thank you. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. I would say, yeah, that the primary way that people can reach me is, is via my website, uh, timjlawrence.com. I generally post weekly. Um, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. You can connect with me that way, um, and you can email me through my website. Uh, I am in a monastic residence until next summer, but I am engaging with the world. So uh, th- those are the best ways to, to get in touch with me. And so, and before I let you go, let me ask you just quickly about that. How did you, <laughs> if this is a quick, quick answer, how did you uh, come to decide that you wanted to do that? And what is it exactly that you're doing? Well, the, the brief version would be this. I would just say that monasticism in general has pulled, helped to pull me through some of the darkest periods of my own life. Uh, I began visiting monasteries about five years ago when I was in the midst of of great illness and devastation. I've just been fascinated by monasticism for many years, by the way that monks live, the way that they are so intentioned and disciplined, the rhythm of life. Um, And I found out about this program um, through another monastery that I had visited. I had visited a bunch of monasteries in the United States, and I found out about this program several years ago and kind of kept it on my radar. Um, and then this, this past year, after I'd left my job, the sort of inner calling, the inner voice kept on nudging at me to, to apply. And so, uh, so I did, and now I'm here. And um, so basically, I'm, I'm a resident intern kind of thing, and I'm, uh, I'm living alongside the monks for nine months. So I'm not a monk myself, but I'm living in accordance with their rule. And I'm, um, so this is, a, this, is an, this is an Episcopal uh, monastery in the, in the Episcopal Church, so I'm, I'm, in, I'm in church five times a day, uh, so we do a lot of chanting, um, and it's also a very popular retreat center, so I help take care of the guest house, take care of the guests, um, I help the monks take care of the monastery itself, and then I spend a lot of time in reading, writing, meditation, and a lot of time in, in silence as well. So I, I don't normally talk as much as I'm talking now. <laughs> I'm sure that uh, there will be a number of things, and I can't wait to to learn more about this, but what would you say the number one thing you've learned about your time is there at the monastery? I would say two things. I would say, first of all, that when you spend so much time in silence, the mirror is never far, and thus it is spending time in quiet and silence most of the time is probably one of the most powerful ways to examine yourself, um, which is a shame because this is not what most people do most of the time. Um, But I would also say that perhaps most importantly thus far, it's that you don't need much of anything to feel connected. I am in a very small community of monks and I feel incredibly loved and cared for by people who don't even really know me, um, but they have chosen me and to invite me into their lives. And so you don't need a lot. You don't even need a lot of people. You just need people who are willing to give of themselves. And if you can then in turn be willing to give of yourself to be vulnerable, it's one of the most magnificent feelings I've, I've ever experienced. Powerful. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. TimJLawrence.com is the website, and the blog is uh, right there as well. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today, Tim. Oh, thank you so much, Justin. It's been it's been a real pleasure. Another one in the books. I hope the uh, audio issues weren't 
too bad for you. Again, I apologize, but it's kind of hard getting great reception from a guy who's uh, living in a monastery <laughs> tucked away in a closet. But I thought he had some very profound things to say, and I hope this kind of helps you on your journey along the way. Of course, you can get all the full show notes, the resources, and everything we talked about, links to his blog and the post that he was talking about um, online at my website. Just go to justinbarclay.com slash purpose zero zero four. That's justinbarclay.com slash purpose zero zero four. And if you want to be on the all access newsletter, get updates, tips, tricks, and inspiration as I uh, kind of show you how I've got about living on purpose. You just text in four, four, two, 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 and text the name Justin to four, four, two, two, two. And I'll set you up. I'll send you all kinds of good stuff. That's where the, uh, the VIP secret area is. <laughs> all right. Another great addition. And I can't wait to share with you next week's guest. We've got a big one coming. A couple of big ones lined up. Is there anybody that you'd like to see or hear, more importantly, right here on this show on purpose? I'd love to hear from you. You can email me on my blog, justin at justinbarclay.com. In the meantime, have a great week. Cheers to you and your life on purpose. Extraordinary Stories of Ordinary Heroes. This is On Purpose with Justin Barclay on the Blaze Radio Network.